called the Christian worldview, and we're going to look at some major Christian doctrines. I think this is an important topic, and we're going to start with the subject matter of the Bible. Now, maybe you've heard someone say in your hearing, the Bible is full of errors. It's just a bunch of myths and fairy tales I used to believe when I was in kindergarten. Well, you know, the person that's saying something like that is a very proud and arrogant person who probably hasn't even read any of the Bible, much less studied it. They're just parodying what they heard a professor say. But sadly enough, there are many Christians that don't read the Bible either, much less study it. A few stats here. About a third of Christians read the Bible daily and another fourth only a time or two a week. 25% of Christian men don't read it at all. And only 43% of Christians believe the Bible is accurate in what it teaches. 13% of Christians have a Christian worldview. And only 4% of millennial Christians. Everybody has an authority source. Either themselves, or a person, or a sacred or holy writing. For Christians, our authority source is the Bible. But how do we get our Bibles? And is our Bible reliable? Now, before we had the Bibles that we hold in our hands, there was something called oral tradition. Stories would be passed down throughout generations. Take, for instance, the gospel stories. Jesus died around 30 A.D. And Mark's gospel was written around 70 A.D. and John's around 90 A.D. So we're talking a 40 to 60 year span of the life of Jesus before these things were finally written down. The, the disciples were dying and they needed to have a written record. So what happened between those 40 and 60 years that the gospels were written? Oral tradition. The teaching of Jesus was passed down. Here, I'm going to show you how oral tradition works. Nursery rhymes are a great example Let's say together, and I want you to say it out loud with me, Mary had a little lamb. Okay, let's go. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's amazing. How about Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Now, did you just read those yesterday? And it's fresh in your mind. You probably haven't read those in 50 years, some of you, that you read, maybe read those to your children. How did you remember them? And to be able to recite them so perfectly, oral tradition. It's how we remember songs. If I was to say, hey, let's sing the first stanza of Amazing Grace, you'd all sing it. Of course, we've sung it a number of times, but we remember songs. The idea is oral tradition. So that's how the Bible stories were passed down originally. Let me give you three key words that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks. The first word is revelation. Not the book of the Bible, but the concept of revelation. The Bible was written to show us what God is like. God chose to reveal himself to us, or we would have to make up a God. This is the actual giving of truth. Revelation is the giving of truth. God shows us who he is. Look at Romans 16, 25 and 6. Now to him who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret. For long ages, 
but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's revelation. Second word is inspiration. Inspiration is the process by which God gave us the Bible. He used human beings. But according to historian Yuval Noah Denari, he says AI will create new religions. Software like chat GPT will write their own sacred scriptures. But these men were inspired by God to write down what God wanted them to say. The Bible is thus infallible, inerrant in the original Documents completely trustworthy. This is the receiving and recording of truth. Inspiration is the receiving and recording of truth. I like this quote about truth. Truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. It can defend itself. The Bible is our final authority for life and practice. Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God. In other translations, it'll say inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Third word is illumination. Illumination is where the Holy Spirit brings light and understanding to me as I read the scriptures. It means to understand truth. Luke twenty four forty five says he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Without the Holy Spirit, I can't understand the Bible. I like what Mark Twain said. Some people are bothered by the passages in the Bible that they don't understand. I'm bothered more by the ones I do understand. Yeah. So we're going to focus this morning on that word revelation, the giving of truth. And next week, we'll look at inspiration and illumination. I want to answer the question this morning. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? The truth about Revelation is that we can't discover God. We needed to be shown. And so God took the initiative. We could not have figured out God on our own. We would have made up a God in our image. So how does God reveal himself? Well, many ways. Angels, visions, direct speech, dreams, through nature, by prophets, his son, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the final and greatest revelation of God. He shows us what God is like. Think of Jesus as the living word. And the Bible as the written word. The Bible is God's written record of the ways that he has revealed himself. And he revealed himself to men who wrote this down. Men who lived in a particular time and place and culture and circumstances and with their own personality. We'll look at that more next week. God inspired them to write down exactly what he wanted. And what they wrote was not just a record of God's actions it's not just information about God. It's not just ancient history, though very accurate. It's all those things, but it's more. Because 
of the Holy Spirit in us. As we read God's word, we have an encounter with God. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Bible daily, because that's how God mostly speaks to us. Some people will say, well, God never speaks to me. Yes, he does. Just get in the word and he'll speak to you. But how do I know that the Bible, this Bible that we have now is from God? Well, let's look at some external and internal evidences. First, the external. These are sources outside the Bible. The first would be eyewitnesses. Events happened and eyewitnesses recorded it or told others who recorded it. Good example of that is Luke in chapter 1, 1 to 4. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, because Luke wasn't there, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is wanting this convert Theophilus to be very certain about his faith, that what he's heard is true, is truly the word of God. And, and Luke was a first-rate historian. I imagine that Luke interviewed people. Maybe Mary, and that's how he got the, the birth narratives. Matthew and John wrote Gospels, and they were there. Paul said he saw the resurrected Jesus who gave him teaching. Well, so did 500 people who were alive at one time on one occasion. 1 Corinthians fifteen six says, Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. By now they've died. 500 people at one time. Can you imagine 500 witnesses to something appearing in court one after the other? That would be very strong evidence. So we have the eyewitness evidence. Secondly, we have the number of manuscripts. Number of manuscripts. We have over 25,000 complete or parts of books of the New Testament. 5,800 in Greek, over 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 in other languages. And then archaeologists would find other writings that would have Bible quotes in them. So there's, oh, okay, so this book has some of the scripture in it. They would collect that. They would find pieces of pottery or <clears throat> pot, pottery, whole pottery. And they would have a Bible verse written on it. They would collect that. Or Bible verses were written on walls. It all adds up to an astounding number of evidences for the Scripture. In fact, there's no comparison to the amount of Bible copies and fragments compared to the rest of the works of antiquity. And also, there's an amazingly short time between the writings of Scripture and the first copies that we have, the originals. We have fragments from the 80s A.D., Complete manuscripts from the 300s A.D. Let, let me read what Norman Geisler says here. For the New Testament, the evidence is overwhelming. There are 5,366 complete manuscripts to compare and draw information from, and some of these date from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. To put that into perspective, 
there are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. And that is the most famous book of ancient Greece. No one doubts the existence of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. But we have only 10 copies of it. And the earliest copy was made 1,000 years after it was written. To have such an abundance of copies of the New Testament from dates within 70 years after their writing is amazing. Norman Geisler. Now, no autographs, that is, originals, still exist. So that makes a big problem, doesn't it? Why would God allow that? When monks copied scripture, it was their practice to destroy the old copy that they were copying from. In their minds, newer was better. The older copy would wear out and be destroyed or disintegrate, fall apart. I think the monks also considered, would people worship this document? Would it become an idol or a relic? So let's talk about the copying process. It is astounding the care that the copyist used in copying Holy Scripture. The Hebrew scribes were called sophorim, literally counters. They deserve this title because they counted every letter of every book of Scripture to make sure that nothing was left out. Then they counted the number of times a particular word appeared in a book and checked each letter that appeared in the middle of each book and in the middle of each major section of the book. The Hebrew Bible was literally copied jot by jot, tittle by tittle, dot by dot. None of the biblical autographs in Hebrew and Aramaic, those are the Old Testament languages, are believed to have survived because of the scribal practice of destroying, deteriorating manuscripts after they were copied. Up until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was 1947, the oldest Hebrew copies dated only to the 10th century A.D., which is the Masoretic text of the Septuagint. Now, that date is pushed back to the 2nd century B.C. Comparison revealed only minute differences between the scrolls and latter copies, and in no case was any major doctrine affected. So we've got 1,200 years of copying, no major doctrines affected at all. The agreement of the New Testament manuscripts written in Greek, which come from all parts of the Greek and Roman world, is amazing. Dr. A.T. Robertson, the foremost biblical Greek scholar of the 20th century, found notable variances in only one one thousandth of New Testament texts, with none of the differences being of any real significance. Were errors made in the copying process? Of course, human beings were doing the copying. Sometimes things were omitted or added. Those are called variants or textual variants. Let me give you an example. I don't know if this is on the overhead where my name is Ed. Is that up there? No? Okay. All right. So just, just picture this in your mind. My name is Ed. That, that's the scripture verse. So you see it in another copy and it says, my name, N-A-M, is Ed, right? A letter was left off. Is it hard to understand what is being said there? It's not hard at all. It's easy to figure that out. And so if you're reading through your study Bible, you may come to a place where a verse has a footnote at the end of it. You probably have seen that. 
the footnote is the scholars there describing that textual variant so you can understand what's going on there. In fact, there's something called the science of textual criticism. Scholars collect and compare all these manuscripts, right? 5,366 complete Greek manuscripts. They compare them with each other. And then they determine the original text. So they want to produce the best New Testament and Old Testament text they possibly can. When I was in seminary, we studied Nestle and Alice's 26th edition of the Greek New Testament. Now I think there's a 27th edition, so they're still working on it. So at that point, a team of translators will gather together and take the best manuscript copy they can, like Nestle and Alice's 27th edition, and they will translate that into a particular language or dialect. So people ask all the time, what's the most accurate translation in English? I would say the NASB, New American Standard Bible, or the ESV. Very good, very accurate. I think the NIV is very readable. But I like what Michael Heiser said. What's the best translation? He says, the one you'll read. Archaeology. Third, external evidence for the reliability of the Bible. Archaeological digs over the years have made amazing discoveries with evidence that supports the biblical record. Now, I could go on very long here, but I'm going to just try to limit a couple examples of amazing archaeology here. The story of Jericho's walls falling down, right? That childhood story that scholars laughed at, that that's impossible. Doubters pointed to the existing city of Jericho, which had been reliably dated to only the time of Christ and which revealed no evidence of such a happening in the past. Then Dr. John Garstang discovered old Jericho, about a mile north of the Jericho of Jesus's day. Scientific dating established that old Jericho had been destroyed about 1400 B.C., the approximate time of Joshua's victory. Evidence showed the city was surrounded by double walls connected by beams at the top on which houses had been built, as described in Joshua 2.15. There was also a single gateway into the city, as noted in Joshua 2.5-7. The outer wall had toppled backward, down an incline, dragging the inner wall behind. The underlying layer of earth was undisturbed. The walls had not been undermined. The city had been destroyed by fire, as reported in Joshua 6.24, and had not been looted before being set afire, supporting Joshua 6.18. Finally, no other city had been built on the site for centuries, which agrees with Joshua 6.26. About a century ago, a young English scholar named William Ramsey went to Asia Minor to prove what he had been taught that Dr. Luke's history, as recorded in the book of Acts, was full of errors. After years of painstaking study, Ramsey declared Acts to be completely trustworthy in every historical and geographical detail, and that he himself had become a Christian. And William Albright says, Archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the New Old Testament tradition. Let's look at the internal evidence. Within the Bible itself is the first. The Bible is the best-selling book 
in human history, and nothing else comes close. The first book ever printed was a Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, of which when I was a seminary student in Pasadena, we could, you could go view it. And I did many times in the Huntington Museum there. A Bible is printed about every three seconds. The Bible has been translated into over 1,300 languages and dialects. More books have been written about the Bible than any other book in human history. The Bible has about 40 authors who wrote over a 1,500-year period and an amazing unity telling the story of salvation of mankind by God. That unity of 40 different authors is miraculous. A second internal evidence is personal experience. And that's the testimony of changed lives. The millions upon millions of Christians over the centuries, 2,000 years of Christian history, who proclaim that Jesus Christ is real and he lives in my heart. Like the Easter hymn, I'll tell you how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And I can say the same. No one can convince me otherwise that Jesus Christ is not real and that he did not come and live in my heart and change my life. Third internal evidence. Jesus said the Bible came from God. He recognized the spirit as the author. Matthew twenty-two forty-three. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying. He quoted it as authoritative. Matthew Twenty-four, fifteen. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He proclaimed its uniqueness. Matthew five, seventeen to eighteen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus called the Bible the word of God in 1035 of John's gospel. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Jesus himself believed the accounts of Noah, Jonah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve as historical Jesus would not have accommodated these as falsehoods. And I wonder, why do people today, living in the 21st century, think they know more than Jesus or the writers of Scripture who lived then and were writing these accounts as eyewitnesses? But how do we know we have the right books? Why are there only 66 books in our Bible? Why, why are there a lot more? That's called the canon of scripture, not something you shoot with. The word canon means a measuring rod or rule. In other words, it's a list of authoritative books. But what evidence is there that we have the right books? Let's consider that question. First, the testimony of the Bible itself. Jesus recognized it. In Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words 
that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those three headings were the three sections of the Old Testament. So Jesus is simply recognizing that what all the Jews of that day would have recognized as the word of God, as the Bible, those three sections. He affirms that. Peter recognized Paul's writings as scripture. Second Peter 3.16. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's saying Paul's writings are scripture. And then Paul recognizes the equal inspiration of both the Old Testament and the New Testament in one amazing place. In 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy and Luke and calling them both scripture. Secondly, we have the authority of an apostle. The authority of an apostle. Either he wrote it himself or he was connected to an apostle who wrote it. Like Mark's gospel. Mark was connected to Peter. And Luke was connected to Paul. Third, it was recognized as teaching truth. Recognized as teaching truth. It, it had the ring of truth about it. These books, these letters were read in the churches to benefit, to profit spiritually by its readers. Lives were changed. Some letters had authority, others didn't. Fourthly, it was confirmed by the early church. I wouldn't say decided upon by the early church. It was decided upon by God. They just merely recognized these are the books that God has inspired. They agreed on 66 letters or books and rejected all the others that were floating around at the time. Apocryphal books weren't accepted as canonical. They had value, but they weren't on par with Scripture. Like, I really like the book Didache, written sometime within the first century. Really a helpful book, not on par with Scripture. I really like the book of Enoch. Really fascinating, interesting. Same thing applies to Enoch. Not on par with Scripture. The Old Testament was officially recognized by the Jewish people at Jamnia in 90 A.D. And there was church-wide acceptance of all 66 books of the Old and New Testament in Athanasius' Easter letter in 367. We as Christians believe that God put everything necessary for salvation in the Bible. Nothing necessary was left out. Paul speaks to the Colossians and he says something about the letter I wrote to the Laodiceans. We don't have that letter. It's never been discovered. And Paul writing to the Corinthians, we know he wrote two letters to them. He actually wrote two other letters to them, which have never been found. What if they were found tomorrow? Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be fascinating to read those letters. But you know what? They're not canonical. They're not in the Bible. That wasn't God's will. 
So there's no adding or taking away from the 66 books which comprise the word of God. John, in writing in Revelation, at the end of the book says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. I want you to know with certainty that you can have confidence in your Bible as you read it, that it is God's word. It's factual, accurate and complete. So read it and apply it. Lord, thank you for the Bible that we have the record of your person and your ways, your attributes, your actions, so that we can know you and that we can know what pleases you and avoid what displeases you. It is a great gift to us, our Bibles. Oh, Lord, may they not remain unread, collecting dust on our bookshelf, but it would be something that is beside us or near us on our phones that we are reading every day something, even if it's a verse, a couple of verses. And we get in that habit and develop good habits of being in your word and listening to your voice as you speak to us. Lord, I am so thankful for the Bible as the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.
Yes, Lord, that is our desire, that we would be sacred space where you would dwell within us. And then, Lord, that you would live your life out through.